those who are still talking in the back could make their way in. We'd like to get started with our second speech for the afternoon. So again, we have two halves to this conference as a whole. First half on the government of the church, and in the first speech, we really had three of the five main principles of Reformed church government set forth. Christ rules his church as the only head. He rules through the office bearers. But yet the members also participate. They're given a voice. And now in our second speech of this afternoon, we'll have the fourth and fifth principles, the autonomy of the local congregation, but at the same time, the the need to federate into a denomination. Our speaker is Reverend Eric Geikelar. He was ordained into the ministry in 2013, and he has served the Randolph PRC congregation for his entire ministry. Welcome, Reverend Geikelar. This is the first time I've been behind this pulpit. Uh, It's my privilege to be here and to give this speech this afternoon. As was announced in this speech, I'm going to look at the relationship between the local congregation and the broader assemblies. And specifically, I'm going to look at the issue of authority. Is authority ultimately rooted in the local congregation or local consistory? Or is authority ultimately rooted in the broader assemblies? Who has more authority, the local congregation or the broader assemblies? Is that even uh, the proper way to phrase the question? How are we supposed to think about these things? This is a timely subject worthy of our consideration because there are ditches on both sides. In the one ditch, there are some churches and denominations today who would promote the idea of hierarchy so that ultimate authority is found in the synod. Synod is at the top of the totem pole with the most authority, then classes underneath the synod, and then you have the local congregation and the local consistory with the least amount of authority. You could think of the CRC. This is really how the CRC effectively works. In the other ditch, there are groups of churches that revolt against any idea of authority that belongs to the broader assemblies. There are churches that would insist that even belonging to a federation of churches, all the authority still resides exclusively in the local congregation so that the decisions made by the broader assemblies are not settled and binding for anyone 
until the local consistory or the local council ratifies the decisions of synod. Churches with such a position even think it is entirely within their freedom to damn synodical decisions as heretical without even feeling the obligation to present a protest or an appeal. Such churches might even be inclined to tell the individual believer that synod has no real authority over the individual believer, and the individual believer in the local church does not have to view these decisions as settled and binding. And if an individual has a problem with a decision of the broader assemblies, he doesn't have to submit to that decision, but he can proceed to stir up opposition to the decision through his local congregation and within the denomination as a whole. That, of course, is another ditch. That is the ditch of independentism and the ditch of a schismatic spirit. In order to maintain proper Reformed Church government, we need to avoid both those ditches. Hierarchy on the one hand, independentism on the other. In this speech, I want to present to you the proper way of thinking about these issues. In this speech, I'm first going to look at the autonomy, the principle of the autonomy of the local congregation. And then after that, I'm going to look at the, the authority, the real authority of the broader assemblies. And we're going to see how these two principles perfectly harmonize in Reformed church government. First, I want to speak to you about the autonomy of the local congregation. Really, this speech has two parts to it. First, the autonomy of the local congregation, and then the authority of the broader assemblies. The word autonomy means self-ruling. When we speak of the autonomy of the local congregation, we are talking about the self-rule of the local congregation. Local congregation is not ruled by an outside authority. The local congregation rules itself through its God-ordained office bearers. And Reverend Cordes spoke about that a little bit in the last speech, the, the authority, the real authority of the office bearers in the local congregation. Now, to be clear, in the absolute sense of the word, no congregation is autonomous because the local congregation is ruled by King Jesus. Jesus is the Lord of the local congregation. He rules that congregation by His Word and Spirit, and true churches must submit to the rule of Jesus Christ as expressed in His Word. We understand that. But what I mean by autonomy is that Jesus rules over local congregations through the body of elders chosen out of the congregation by the congregation itself so that Randolph PRC doesn't need another church to appoint her office bearers for her or do her preaching for her or do her discipline work for her or care for the poor in her midst. Randolph PRC does that herself. That's the principle of the autonomy of the local congregation. And the reason for this is the fact that each congregation is a complete manifestation of the church of Jesus Christ. The local congregation is a unit in itself and it does not belong to a larger, uh, it, it, it's not part of a, a bigger church so that it's a subdivision of a super church that has superior power over it. The classis is not the instituted church. The synod is not the instituted church. The local congregation is the instituted church of Christ. Now I want to prove that, and by way of proving that, I want to flesh this out a little bit. First of all, we can look at Scripture Scripture emphasizes the autonomy of the local congregation. 
We'll go through this briefly. In Acts 14, we read that each church had its own elders. In Acts 6, we read that the church of Antioch was instructed to appoint, to, to pick out its own deacons. In 1 Peter 5, the elders, elders of local congregations, are called to rule and take the oversight. The office bearers in the local congregation are charged with the service of the word and the sacraments, with maintaining purity of doctrine and the exercise of discipline. Moreover, in Scripture, we read of the office bearers forming a body and taking united action whenever necessary. So Scripture's teaching is that the local congregation is autonomous. She rules over herself through the office bearers she has chosen from out of her own members. The authority of Christ is vested in the office bearers of the local congregation. That's the Scriptures. In addition to Scriptures, you have the Reformed Confessions, and especially the Belgic Confession, where you see the principle of the autonomy of the local congregation being emphasized. What we should know is that the Belgic Confession placed, play, uh, played a pivotal role in shaping our church order and our understanding of Reformed church government. The Belgic Confession was written in, 18, in 1561, seven years before the first shape of a synod before the first forming of a synod at the Convention of Wesel and the first actual synod, the Synod of Emden in 1571. And the Belgian Confession, especially Articles 30, 31, and 32, laid the foundation for how the Reformed churches would proceed with Reformed church government. And the Belgian Confession, especially Article 30, establishes and emphasizes the principle of the autonomy of the local congregation. And it emphasizes this principle in a few different ways, but it does so especially when it refers to the local congregation as the true church. The true church is found in the local congregation. It's the local congregation that bears the marks of the true church. That's the approach of the Belgic Confession in Articles 30, 31, and 32. In fact, when the Belgic Confession speaks about the government of the church, nothing is said about the rule and government of the broader assemblies. That's how much the Belgic Confession emphasizes the local congregation. And because the Belgic Confession emphasizes the local congregation, Reformed churches have always placed a heavy emphasis on the autonomy of the local congregation. In addition to Scripture and in addition to the Reformed Confessions, we can also look at the church order. And when you look at the church order itself, you see that the church order also explicitly emphasizes and maintains the idea of the autonomy of the local congregation. And it does that in a few different ways. First of all, as simple as it may be, there is the, the title to the church order itself. Even in our English, it's emphasized. The church order of the Protestant Reformed churches. Not the Protestant Reformed church, but the Protestant Reformed churches. And this is something we emphasize right from the very beginning of our existence as churches. We are not one super church, one Protestant Reformed church. Rather, we are a denomination of individual local churches. And we have this name, Protestant Reformed churches, because since our beginning, we have emphasized this reality. But in the Dutch, in the Dutch it comes out even more clearly because in the Dutch they don't refer to it as the church order. They refer to it as the church's 
order of the Protestant Reformed churches. It's in the plural. The church's order, it's very emphatic on this issue. This is the rule for individual churches as part of a denomination. That, first of all. Second, even the very order and structure of the church order emphasizes the preeminence of the local congregation. As you proceed through the church order, what comes first? The offices. Minister, elder, and deacon. And they are treated first because the office bearers in the local congregation are fundamental. You don't have a classis, and you don't have a synod. You don't even have a local congregation without office bearers in the local congregation. And then when you get to the second section on the assemblies, consistory, classis, and synod, in what order are the assemblies treated? They're treated in that order. First consistory, then classis, and then synod, because that's where authority starts. Classis and synod build off of what you have already in the local congregation. That's second of all. Then third, as you continue to look at the church order, when you look at the specific articles in the church order, the autonomy of the local congregation becomes very prominent. For example, how are office bearers elected according to Articles 4, 20, and 23? We take it for granted. We know how they're elected. It's done by the local congregation under the judgment and supervision of the council. And that's the way it is because of the principle of the autonomy of the local congregation. It rules itself. How is discipline administered according to Articles 71 through 80? It's administered by the local consistory. That's because of the principle of the autonomy of the local congregation. And there are more articles that we could point to. And then when you go through the church order, you come to Article 30. And in Article 30 of the church order, you have a very important article regarding this matter. Article 30 reads as follows, quote, In these assemblies, ecclesiastical matters only shall be transacted, and that in an ecclesiastical manner. In major assemblies, only such matters shall be dealt with as could not be finished in minor assemblies, or such as pertain to the churches of the major assembly in common. End quote. Article 30 of the church order was written specifically to safeguard against hierarchy. Article 30 was written in order to defend and maintain the autonomy of the local congregation. Listen to what Vendelin and, Men and Monsma say in their treatment of Article 30. This is a lengthy quotation from them. Quote, Reformed church polity does not know a system of lower and higher courts in the usual sense of the word. It does not, as is done particularly by the Roman Catholic Church, and to a certain extent by some Protestant bodies, attribute a small and limited measure of authority to the governing body of the local congregation, a somewhat greater and more extensive measure of authority to groups of neighboring churches convening together, classus, and a still greater and still more extensive measure of authority to assemblies next in order, and finally the greatest and most extensive measure of authority to the gathering represented, representing all the churches. If this were the case, the church order might speak of lower and higher assemblies, for in that case consistories would have only a limited and a small degree of authority, and synod a very wide and high degree of authority, while our classes would exercise an intermediate measure of authority. 
But Reformed church polity does not hold that consistories have a lower and more limited degree of authority and classes and synods a higher and more, a higher and more extensive degree. Consequently, our church order speaks of major and minor assemblies, not higher and lower assemblies. And I would even add, today we would even prefer to speak about them as narrower and broader assemblies because there's no higher authority. There's narrower and broader assemblies. And the quote continues, Reformed church polity knows of only one type and degree of authority, that vested in the local congregation, or its ruling body, the consistory. The authority exercised by the major assemblies is no higher and greater, essentially, but merely the sum total of the authority exercised by the individual consistories meeting at classes or synod. The authority of our major assemblies may therefore be looked upon as an accumulation or combination of consistorial authority. No classes or synod may therefore assume to do that which rightfully belongs to the domain of the local church and which can be acted upon by its consistory. No major assembly may therefore needlessly interfere with the management of congregational affairs. There are a good many matters and instances concerning which a consistory would have the right to say, if need should require, to major assemblies, hands off. The authority of major assemblies is very clearly limited in this article, and thus, thus maintaining the integrity and autonomy of each church. End quote. Again, the whole point of Article 30 of the church order is to limit the scope of the authority of the broader assemblies. And then finally, in addition to Article 30, I want to direct your attention to Article 36 and the language of Article 36. Article 36 of the church order reads as follows, quote, the classes has the same jurisdiction over the consistory as the general synod has over the classes, end quote. Now, we'll have to say more about that article when we come to the authority of the broader assemblies, but one important thing to notice right now is that Article 36 does not say this. The classis has the same jurisdiction over the congregation or the consistory. The classis does not have the same jurisdiction over the consistory. Maybe I'm even saying that wrong now. One important note, it doesn't put it this way. The classis has the same jurisdiction over the consistory as the consistory has over the congregation. The church order makes a careful distinction here. There's a, there's a difference between the authority of broader assemblies over narrower assemblies and the authority of consistories over their own congregations. For example, consistories exercise discipline over the members of the congregation, but classes does not exercise discipline over consistories. That's a big difference, and it would be hierarchy, and it would be a violation of Reformed church government and biblical principles for a classist to exercise discipline over a consistory or over a member of a local congregation. That would be a denial of the autonomy of the local congregation. So there you have a few important articles from the church order that emphasize and maintain the autonomy of the local congregation. So we've looked at Scripture, we've looked at the Reformed Confessions briefly, and the church order. Now why have I started by looking and emphasizing looking at and emphasizing the autonomy of the local congregation. I've started here because the autonomy of the local congregation is fundamental. 
Without the autonomy of the local congregation, we cannot even understand properly what a classis actually is and what a synod actually is. This is the fundamental building block for understanding what classis is and what synod is. And in addition, this is where we start because we need to put away every pathway that leads to hierarchy. Historically, the churches of the Reformation abominated hierarchy. In fact, in the original draft of the church order, what article do you think was first? Of all the articles that make up our church order, which one was first? This one. Listen to this. Quote, No church shall in any way lord it over other churches, no minister over other ministers, no elder or deacon over other elders or deacons. End quote. In our present church order, that's Article 84. Originally, it was Article 1. Because the point was, no hierarchy. Because our Reformed Fathers, coming out of the Roman Catholic Church, refused to go back to a hierarchical, unbiblical, and corrupt form of church government. In our own history as Protestant Reformed churches, this, is an, this was an issue. As you know, Hoxima and Ophoff and Danhoff were disciplined not by their consistories, but by their classes, and that was an act of hierarchy. And ever since, our churches have unceasingly warned against the evils of denominational hierarchy. And hierarchy is a real ditch and a real danger. I think that even we ourselves are prone to underestimate how inclined we are to hierarchy. We are more prone to fall into this ditch than we sometimes realize. Because it's always easier to pass on the work to someone else. It's always easier to say, let the broader assembly do the work for us. After all, they're going to do a better job than what we're going to do, aren't they? And then it's also tempting sometimes for broader assemblies, for others, to say, let's get our hand on this work so we can direct it in the way that it needs to go because work needs to be done here and we know what to do, so let's do it. A fundamental question that we need to ask is this. Are we respecting the autonomy of the local congregation? Office bearers, are you respecting the autonomy of your own local congregation? Meaning, are we respecting the calling that God gives to elders of our own congregations, and do we also respect the fact that God equips those whom He calls to office? Are we as elders being diligent in all that Christ has called us to do as a consistory? And then, are we also respecting the autonomy of other local congregations as well? Are we making sure that the consistory has truly finished its work before classis enters into the matter? Are we respecting the fact that other consistories are qualified to do the work that God has given them to do? Just as much as we want to respect the voice of an individual believer when it comes to protests or appeals, we also need to respect the authority that has been given by Christ to the local congregation. I think this also applies to such things as standing committees at Synod. I remember an article in the Standard Bearer a few years ago that faced the question, whose is the work of missions? Is mission work 
the work of individual churches, or is mission work the work of synod? And the official position of our church is, th- is this, quote, missions is the work of the local congregation. Some mission work may become the concern of the churches in common, but mission work is the work of the local congregation, end quote. Now I should ask you, is that how we always think about mission work? Or are we sometimes more inclined to think about mission work as the work of a committee, perhaps? Or the work of synod? Or the work of the foreign mission committee? Or the work of the domestic mission committee? That would be a serious mistake. Mission work is the work of your local congregation. The local congregation is where God has placed the authority to administer the word and sacraments. The local congregation is the place where God has placed the authority to take care of the poor. The local congregation is the place where God has placed the authority to carry out discipline. And it all comes back to this fundamental biblical principle of the autonomy of the local congregation through her office bearers. The authority of Christ is vested in the office bearers of the local congregation. So I've emphasized the idea of the autonomy of the local congregation. That should, that's basic, that's fundamental. But now as we move on to the second half of the speech, the question comes up, what about the authority then of the broader assemblies? After all that I have said, the question arises, do the broader assemblies even have any authority? Maybe they shouldn't have any authority. Or maybe the question even arises, should we have broader assemblies? Sadly, in the 1990s, there were those in the CRC reacting against the hierarchy in the CRC. There were those who were advocating this kind of idea. Synods are corrupt. We should do away with synods altogether, some said. How should we think about these things? Let's treat that second question first. Should we even have broader assemblies? Are broader assemblies even appropriate when you appreciate the fundamental principle of the autonomy of the local congregation? Well, the answer is, of course they are, most certainly. But why? Well, a few reasons. First of all, to more fully express the unity of the church. Reformed and Presbyterian churches have always grounded synodical union, federation, in the unity of the church of Christ. The spiritual unity of the body of Jesus Christ must come to visible institutional manifestation. And that manifestation is not exhausted in the local congregation, even as the local congregation does not exhaust the reality of the church. Congregations that share the spirit of Christ, as is evidenced in the fact that there is harmony in their stand for the truth, unite in the assemblies known as classes and as synods. By this union, the congregations together show the oneness of Christ before the world in a greater way than doing it individually and separately. And that's to the greater glory of Christ. So first of all, to express the unity of the church. Second of all, we should have broader assemblies because this is the template given to us in the New Testament church 
and even from then on. Even in the Old Testament, you could give examples. But first, we can look at how the apostles behave themselves and the authority that the apostles exercised over the churches in common. When you look at the apostles and how they behaved themselves, one thing that stands out is the concern they had that all the churches teach the same doctrines, that all the churches practice the same order, and that they cooperate with each other in the proper work of the church. How many times doesn't the apostle say, and so I ordain in all the churches? Or say something to the effect that this is how the Corinthians should do something because this is how it's done in all the churches. That was especially the case with the church at Corinth. And the struggle with the saints at Corinth is that they were tempted to view themselves as different. There was too much pride. There was pride, too much pride in that church. They were tempted to view themselves as different from others and they thought that they were a church that was on a more exceptional level than the rest of the churches. And the apostle spoke against this. The apostle emphasized by these kinds of comments that the churches should strive to do things the same way. Now it's true We don't have apostolic authority or or the apostolic office in the church anymore today. But the point here is that their concern was not merely their concern. It was the concern of the Lord of the church, Jesus Christ himself. This is how Jesus ruled his church during the New Testament time, during the New Testament scriptures, through his apostles. And King Jesus has that same concern today. Jesus is concerned that the unity of the churches be expressed and maintained as much as possible. And that's done through churches joining in a denomination. Then in addition to the attitude and example of the apostles themselves, you have this significant event of the Jerusalem Council recorded for us in Acts 15. I'm not going to get into a big description of what Acts 15 was all about, but we should notice that in Acts 15, there was a broader assembly of churches, more than just the local congregation at Jerusalem. And in that broader assembly, it wasn't just apostles, it was not just apostolic authority that was being exercised, but that broader assembly involved the authority of the apostles and the elders. The decisions taken at that Jerusalem council were decisions made taken together by apostles and elders after deliberations were had. And then what we should especially notice about that decision was that it was authoritative and it was binding and settled. It was binding upon all the churches. The Jerusalem Council was an assembly that was broader than a mere local consistory and it was a body made up of apostles and elders that made decisions that ordained decrees that were binding upon all the churches. And in addition to that, the Jerusalem Council was an assembly whose deliberations and decisions were blessed by the Holy Spirit. So that in Acts 16 verse 5 we read, and so were the churches established in the faith and increased in number daily. The point is, the New Testament itself makes plain that the autonomy of the local congregation which is clearly emphasized in Scripture, does not mean that each church is free to go her own way or do her own thing with disregard to other churches. Family members, sisters, sister churches 
do not disregard each other in the body of Christ. Then moving on from the New Testament Scriptures, you get beyond that to the days of the early church. And you see the practice and the example of the churches at the time of the early church. Think of the early church councils. The Council of Nicaea. The Council of Constantinople. The Council of Chalcedon. We see that assembling together was the practice and example of the early church. And these councils indisputably had the blessing of the Holy Spirit upon them and were used for the good of the churches and the church universal ever since. Then in addition to that, think about the churches and how they behaved at the time of the Reformation. It's actually very astonishing when you look at the history It's astonishing to think that even though the Reformed churches had such an aversion towards hierarchy, they nevertheless were still driven to meet together and hold synods and classes. And part of what drove these churches to band together into synods and classes was the fact that there's a very real danger in being independent. Because hierarchy does not just threaten synods and broader assemblies, Hierarchy also threatens local congregations when a minister or an elder tries to lord it over other office bearers in the church. Independent churches have no accountability to others. Independent churches have no mutual oversight and they do not enjoy and benefit from the, multitude, the, the wisdom in the multitude of counselors. As strange as it may sound, I think a case can be made that those who are inclined to lord it over others are in fact going to be inclined more towards an independent form of church government because then they can get what they want. They don't have as much accountability or we could even put it this way, as much authority to submit to. And really it all comes back to unity. The unity of the Spirit. It's really this burden to express the unity of the church that compels churches to seek each other out and join with each other in a denomination. It's this burden for love, love for my fellow churches that impels me to seek them out, federate with them for the mutual edification and prosperity of all involved. And synods and classes are the way that we express that unity of the church. In fact, we must even put it this way. For a local congregation to have membership in a denomination, that's not a purely voluntary matter. We're not individually free to decide for ourselves whether we should be independent or not. But each local congregation is compelled by this calling of Jesus Christ to express the unity of the church to federate into a denomination. As Vendelin and Monsma puts it, quote, because of this spiritual unity in Christ and confessional unity doctrinally by God's providence, federation is not left merely to the judgment of each church. There is a very definite spiritual obligation flowering forth from a real spiritual union and agreement which makes ecclesiastical federation and its implications mandatory upon the churches, end quote. So should we have broader assemblies? Well, not only should we have them, 
And not only is this the history of the Christian church, but in a real sense, this is mandatory. But now if that's true, then the question comes, how are we to understand this authority of the broader assemblies? If the local congregation is autonomous, as we've already emphasized, then how are we to understand the authority of broader assemblies? How does this work? Well, there are two things we can say about the authority of broader assemblies. First of all, it is very real authority. It is real authority. And second, and this is key, it is derived authority. First, it is real authority. The the authority of the broader assemblies is real authority. We just said in Acts chapter 15, the decisions made at the Jerusalem council were binding. The decisions made at that broader assembly had authority. These were decisions, we read, that were being laid upon the churches. The church order itself emphasizes this authority. To go back to the church order, in Article 36, we already read it, or I already read it to you, we read again, the classis has the same jurisdiction over the consistory as the general synod has over the classis. Now, we said earlier there's a distinction. The classis does not have the same authority over the consistory as the consistory has over the congregation. But the classis does have authority, jurisdiction, over the consistory in the same way that synod has jurisdiction over classis. And now, that word jurisdiction in Article 36 is the word that means authority or the say, the say-so. The classis has the same authority over the consistory as the general synod has over the classis. The broader assemblies have real authority. Then, even in Article 30, which I read earlier, Article 30, which is so often used to emphasize that the authority of the broader assemblies is restricted, right? That, that restri- you, you may not do, you may not get your hands on things that are not completed at the narrower assemblies. But that restriction itself implies that the broader assemblies do have real authority. They have authority to rule in matters that could not be finished at the narrower assemblies, and they have authority to rule in matters that pertain to the churches in common. They have authority. And then in addition to that, in Article 31, we have that article which states that all decisions adopted by the broader assembly are to be considered settled and binding unless, until, it be proved to conflict with the Word of God or with the articles of the church order. The broader assemblies have real authority. Their decisions are settled and binding. They are settled so that any agitation and propaganda against the decision is improper in the churches. It's improper and it's schismatic. And they are binding. That is, these decisions must be honored and submitted to by all parties. And the point there is, especially those parties or those churches or individuals that don't particularly like the decision. So the broader assemblies have real authority. But then second, and what really brings everything together together in this speech is this, the authority of the broader assemblies is derived. It is derived authority. And what is meant by that is this. The broader assemblies 
do not have direct authority from Jesus Christ. This kind of ties into the last speech. The local congregation is given that authority. The local congregation is given original and essential authority because the authority resides in the office bearers in the local congregation. There is no higher authority in the churches than the authority in the local congregation, the authority of the local congregation. But now here's the key. The broader assemblies receive their authority by virtue of the fact that the local autonomous congregations have agreed to come together and have agreed to make decisions together and have agreed to submit to the decisions of the majority of the churches that have gathered together. Maybe I can reread that. The broader assemblies receive their authority by virtue of the fact that the local autonomous congregations have agreed to come together and have agreed to make decisions together and have agreed to submit to the decisions of the majority of the churches that are gathered together. Exercising their autonomy, this is what Reformed churches choose to do. That's what federating is all about. The churches agreed to abide by the articles of the church order, including articles 30, 31, and 36, and all the rest. The authority to rule resides in the office bearers in the local congregation. Local congregations choose to come together, expressing their unity through mutual cooperation and decision-making. What this means is that the decisions made at classes and synod are not the decisions of a church body that stands over and above the local congregation, but the decisions made at classes and at synod are the decisions of the churches themselves assembled at such meetings. The authority of classes is the authority of the churches that make up the classes. When we as churches meet together for classes, we are not delegating authority to classes, but we as churches are the authority at classes. And we have agreed that the majority rules. That's Article 31. So it is not so much that classes has made the decision or classes has ruled this way or that way. Rather, it is better stated this way. It is the churches at classes that have ruled this way or that way. Because it's the churches that make up the classes. And the authority of synod is the authority of the churches that make up synod. When we as churches meet together for synod, we are not delegating authority to synod or to classes west. We as churches are the authority at synod. And all our churches are being represented by the men whom we as churches have chosen by majority vote. Through the delegates that we choose to send to synod, we rule at synod. So that what we as churches decide at synod, that's the rule. It's not synod's rule, it's our rule. Because synod is not its own entity, synod is the church's. So we need to be clear. When churches get together for classes or for synod, These churches are not surrendering their autonomy to the broader assemblies. I don't even think it's technically proper to say that the local churches delegate 
authority to the broader assemblies. I don't think that's proper language, that the local churches delegate authority to the broader assemblies. No, we are not delegating authority to the broader assemblies themselves, but we are delegating individual office bearers, elders, and ministers who have authority invested in them by Jesus Christ, we are delegating individual office bearers to represent us and our churches at the broader assemblies. As local congregations, we are not bestowing authority on the broader assemblies. It's not as if the broader assemblies are entities in and of themselves, separate from the local congregations. No, again, the broader assemblies themselves are the churches. It's the churches themselves that make up the broader assemblies by the representation they have through the office bearers they have chosen to get delegate for themselves. And tomorrow, when we choose men to send to synod, those are men who are not just representing classes, but to be more clear, they are representing the individual churches that make up classes West. That's how we need to think about it emphasizing the autonomy of the local congregation and yet emphasizing how broader assemblies have real authority. So again, the authority of the broader assemblies is derived authority. Inasmuch as the authority of the broader assemblies is the authority of the local congregations themselves having come together and having agreed to submit to the majority decision of the churches together. To put it another way, We can say, there is no authority in the churches higher than that of the consistory. There's nothing higher than the authority of the consistory. The office bearers, representing Christ. There's no Christ that rules over Christ. There is no authority higher than that of the consistory. But at the same time, we can also say this. Classes and synod do have greater authority than the individual consistory. Because the authority of classes and synod represents the authority of all the consistories cumulatively. And if a local congregation finds itself having a minority opinion among the churches, that local congregation either submits itself to the decisions made by the broader assemblies, which it has made which it has agreed to do by, it, by virtue of adopting Article 31 of the church order, and to do otherwise is schismatic, or that local congregation can make the declaration that Christ is no longer ruling in the denomination, and it can leave the denomination. And that's what a church is really doing when it chooses to leave a denomination. Christ is no longer ruling in the denomination. And I may add, when a local congregation, through her office bearers, makes that decision to leave, then she has left. Then that church is no longer part of the denomination. And you can't just leave and then rejoin of your own volition. That's Article 38. To rejoin classes, you need to make a request to classes. This is how the articles of our church order function. This is how we maintain order and decency in the church. As churches, we've come together. We've agreed to abide by these different articles. Furthermore, we affirm, by by agreeing to abide by these articles, we affirm that these articles are proper articles. 
They are biblically rooted. They are articles that do maintain the autonomy of the local congregation while yet recognizing the authority of the broader assemblies so that there is no hierarchy in the rules laid out in the church order. That's exactly the beauty of Reformed church government. The authority of the broader assemblies is very carefully limited and that authority is exercised only over certain prescribed areas of church life. And by abiding by these articles, we maintain proper church order in the churches. We express the unity of Jesus Christ and we are able to serve and help one another in the work Christ gives his church to do. We could add, that's also what church visitors are for. That's what Article 44 of the church order is about. At classes, the churches, the churches choose church visitors so that the churches might serve each other and be served by each other by mutual oversight. So that church visitors are not superintendents with superior authority to rule over the local consistories. That's not the idea at all. And local congregations may not portray the church visitors in that way either. That's dishonest. You may not portray the church visitors that way. But church visitors are authorized by the churches themselves because we voted for them. We all chose them. They are authorized by the churches themselves to visit the churches, promote as much as in them lies the upbuilding of the congregation. And by their advice and assistance and admonishment, they can help direct all things unto the peace, upbuilding, and greatest profit of the churches. And then, then what do the church visitors do? They report back to classes and ask the churches to approve of their labors. It's the churches through her office bearers that exercise the rule. That's always how it is in Reformed church government. So again, what we can say? What can we say? We can say the broader assemblies have derived authority, but nevertheless, it is real authority. And it's real authority precisely because it is the authority of the local churches banded together. Yes, the broader assemblies technically can only advise individual consistories to do things. The church order uses that language very carefully and intentionally with the advice of classes, not really approval, because it's not hierarchy, but advice. And what that means is that a broader assembly cannot enforce a narrower assembly, a, a, a consistory, to accept and execute its decisions in the sense of being able to discipline that consistory if it refuses to accept and execute the decisions that have been made. You can't do that. That would be usurping authority over uh, the office bearers of the local congregation. That would be lording it over, having some office bearers over other office bearers, having Christ above Christ. That, that brings confusion into the churches. But nevertheless, the reality is, according to the church order, the narrower assemblies have put upon themselves the obligation to accept and execute the decisions of the churches, submit to the settled and binding decisions that they themselves have made at the broader assemblies, or, according to the church order, they have the right to protest and appeal, or 
they leave. Follow the church order, which you have agreed to do, and that's why you can be part of our denomination, or leave. But now, here, we must be even stronger than this. It's too easy to say, or leave. Because we must emphasize at this point that the authority of the broader assemblies is not just real authority, and it's not just the authority of the local congregations banding themselves together. This authority is the authority of Jesus Christ. Just as much as it's the authority of Christ in the local congregation, and it's the authority of Christ in the gathering of the local congregations. It's the authority of Christ as he exercises his authority through the assembly of the federated churches. It's the authority of Christ. And the point now is, if you can't demonstrate that the decisions of the broader assemblies violate or go against the authoritative word of Jesus Christ as found in scriptures, then you need to ask yourself the question, what right have I to separate myself from the denomination just because a decision that the churches have made is disagreeable to my personal preferences? Then Christ isn't the authority, then I'm the authority. And if that's the reason you leave, then that's a very real attempt to escape the authority of Jesus Christ as he chooses to lead the churches in the particular way he would have them to go. And you can't expect the blessing of King Jesus if that's how you choose to behave yourself. And you can't just say, hierarchy, hierarchy. But you need to recognize the authority of Jesus Christ as it is expressed in the authority of the churches assembled together. Let's not be like the Corinthians, if, I'm, if I may put it that way. Fall into the sin that they fell into and think that we are an exceptional church or that I am an exceptional office bearer on a higher level than others. And the rules don't apply to me as much as they apply to others. So let me ask you, when classes or synod meets, and our consistories get a copy of the minutes of the meeting, do our consistories have to ratify those decisions? No. Why not? Not because classes is over the consistory. Not because synod has more authority than our consistory and we just have to bow down to synod. No. We don't have to ratify those decisions because the consistory was already there, present at the classes and present at the synod when these broader assemblies made the decisions contained in the minutes. When synod made the decision... That was not some separate entity. When Synod made the decision, the local congregation, my congregation represented at Synod, made the decision. Really, when a local congregation or individual refuses to submit to the decision of classes or Synod, they are refusing to submit to themselves. You see, that's why there's confusion. And that's partly why, maybe especially why, Article 31 of the church order says that all decisions are settled and binding until they're proven otherwise. Because you made the decision. You have to submit to the decision. 
And I think we have to be on guard to protect this way of thinking and promote that way of thinking. It's not us versus them. It's always us. Whether at the local congregation or at classes or at synod, it's always us. To, to say us versus them, that's inherently schismatic. I think we have to be on guard to protect this way of thinking and promote this way of thinking because sometimes we can lose sight of how Reformed Church government actually works, especially with the rhetoric of some that we've been hearing in recent years. So we've looked at some basic principles of Reformed Church government. We've looked at the autonomy of the local congregation. We've emphasized that. We've looked at the authority of the broader assemblies. We've, we've come to understand how these two things harmonize. Now we should ask briefly, for Reformed Church government to really work, what does it require? Well, for Reformed Church government to really work, fundamentally, it requires spiritual unity. You're not going to have unity if there is no unity in Christ. But besides that, for Reformed Church government to really work, it requires mutual trust. It requires that we see each other, in fact, as true churches of Jesus Christ. We need to see Jesus Christ in each other as instituted churches, and we need to respect all the implications of what that means. That Christ is ruling in the midst of each of our local congregations and through our office bearers. We need to respect that and see that. It requires that we humble ourselves so that we don't think that our church is better than another church. And it requires that kind of humility, not only on the part of churches that are on the receiving end of a decision, when maybe a case that pertains to it comes to classes or synod, but we also need that humility on the part of the churches that are making the decisions. We need to respect each other. As local congregations ruled by Christ, we need to respect the autonomy of the local congregation and we also need to respect that Jesus Christ wants us as congregations to be federated and Jesus Christ has chosen to exercise his rule through the decisions made by the broader assemblies, the churches gathered together. As churches, we need to esteem each other better than self. That I think that gets to the heart of many things. We need to esteem each other better than self. And we, we need to be careful to demonstrate that humility and that care and that love in our interactions on the floor of classes and synod. And, and I say that as much to myself as much as to anyone else. We need to be careful to demonstrate that humility and that love and that care in our interactions on the floor of classes and synod. Just like individual believers must learn to exercise their office of believer in the midst of a congregation and what that entails and what their responsibilities are and their callings, so too individual consistories must learn to exercise their place faithfully and profitably in the midst of a denomination of churches. Really, when I look at Reformed Church government, I need to see it this way. Being part of a denomination is a tremendous privilege and a blessing. And my own consistory has the obligation to strive hard, to strive hard to be everything that it is called to be and to do its work faithfully so that we might contribute positively to the unity and to the work of the churches in common. 
Ultimately, proper church government requires the grace of God. It's all of the grace of God. Here, too, we see how our salvation and the preservation and prosperity of the church depends entirely upon the grace of God. It's all of Him. These are blessings God has given us. The fact that we should know each other, the fact that we can get together, the fact that we can look at each other and see a true church of Jesus Christ, that's, a, that's the grace of God. And, and all these blessings are blessings He has secured for us through the cross of His Son, Jesus Christ. And, and this is a blessing that we must be jealous to protect and to enjoy honorably and faithfully. May the Lord continue to bless us with faithful church government. And may the Lord even use this speech for the edification of our churches and to the promotion of the unity of the Spirit. Thank you for your attention.